Heavenly Father, please help us to, sh- to see how we can be sure of your word and to know that it is a sure word, that is a reliable and trustworthy word that you speak to us through the Bible. Help us to see that as we study Psalm 19 tonight, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Psalm 19, and that is on page 456. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, but the voice goes through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, let's pause there for a moment and the children will go to their group and then we'll resume. Right, well, Psalm 19 is uh, here and uh, we're going to be looking at that, but we're going to look at Psalm 19 with a question mark. It says, the law of the Lord is sure. Is it? It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. True or false? Because surely, are there not mistakes in the Bible? And are there not contradictions in the Bible? Now, to say something is perfect is to make a big claim. You can say God is perfect, but can you say the Bible is like God? Perfect? Well, that is important for people to think about because in church we say the Bible is our guide. If it's not a good guide, 
then difficulties come. So we need to think that through. And I want us to think through uh, these uh, 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 challenges of the summer. Three times in Psalm 19, we'll grow our confidence in the Bible. And we need to do that. Because if we don't have good information, we will end up with guesses. Uh, people on our estate uh, may not go to church, but all of them have things to say about God. Everybody will have some clue about God and what they want to say about him. And the question is, are they right? Or is it a guess? And it's to stop guessing that we need someone with authority outside to tell us so that we don't have to guess and to tell us what we need to know. So it's a very gracious gift, this law of the Lord. It's a miraculous book, and I want to say two things about it to give us confidence. And the first thing is, it is sure, and we need to be confident that what we have is what was given to us in the first place. Now, we don't have uh, the original documents that people wrote in the Bible, the original copy of Psalm 19. We don't have that. But then you wouldn't expect to have that because after a thousand years, documents crumble into dust. But we do have copies. And we have very old copies. And you can find those copies and read those copies if you go to places not too far away, like the British Museum. If you go to Manchester, there's a very old, old, old fragment of John's Gospel. As close as you can get to the original. But they are copies. And you know what people say about copies? They say Chinese whispers about copies. So if you give a message to that person, who passed it to that person, who passed it to that person, who passed it to this person, this person, the, the message at the end of the line we are told, will be a different message. You can't trust the copies. The Bible, they say, is just like that. But I don't think that is actually true. When you look at the copies that were made. Let's say, for example, uh, once said there's no mistakes, let's say, for example, uh, a little girl's granny gets this letter from the Queen. She says, I'm pleased to know that you are celebrating your 100th birthday and I send you my congratulations and best wishes on such a special occasion. Say that letter comes from the Queen and the little girl takes it to her school the next day and the, shows it to the teacher. And the teacher says, this is a good letter. I want to teach children how to write good letters. So she gets everybody in the class to copy the letter carefully. Now, they're only little, but they make their copies. And because they make their copies, they make little mistakes. Okay? So, for example, the F in February, in one case, is back to front. Or the R is missing. Uh, so, um, uh, 
that word is missing home. I could grab a seed. And so we say, well, there's another little mistake with seed. Or that word on such an occasion is copied out in such an occasion. In the copies, there are little mistakes. Now, just say that the original gets lost. Do you think by putting these copies together, we will be able to get pretty much the original message? You would reckon we have. And that is actually what the copies are like in the Bible. The mistakes are tiny. And uh, you can easily see what the original was uh, going to tell us uh, without too difficult. The copies help us to get the original right. And a real-life example of that is seen in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, that's the, that's the biggest book of the Old Testament. There are 66 chapters. And until 1947, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah was 900, uh, 900 years after Jesus. The oldest copy of Isaiah, 900 years after Jesus, until 1947. In 1947, a shepherd boy went into those caves at Qumran and found the Black Sea Scrolls. And one of those scrolls was the prophecy of Isaiah, copied 100 years before Jesus. Now there is a difference between the copy that is 100 years before Jesus and the copy that of, of 900 years after Jesus. But the difference is only in the date. Apart from that, the copies match up, even though there are 1,000 years apart. So the Bible has no mistakes, and we are to trust what it says. And where there are bigger mistakes, not bigger mistakes, but bigger differences between the copies and the original, the Bible actually tells you where they are. So, for example, in John chapter 8, where you get the story of the woman caught in adultery, it tells you in the footnotes, in your own Bible, if you look, it'll tell you that that was not found in the original manuscript. At least, actually, I didn't check these church Bibles, but let's, let's try the other one. There's only two. One is in John 8, the other is in Mark 16. Let's go for Mark 16. Uh, I don't know if this comes across in the... Uh, in the uh, Iranian Bible. Um, the last chapter of Mark Gospel, right at the end, okay, um, and yes, in the English version at the bottom, uh, you will see uh, in verse 9, some manuscripts end the book at 16.8, others include verses 9 to 20, uh, and at least one manuscript to as you something else. So it tells you that the oldest manuscripts don't have the longer ending of Mark. 
but it's not hiding it from you. You can see that it's there. And there are only two places where it is like that. And I want to suggest that both those places uh, are places where we ought to read what they say, but nothing specially important hangs on those longer bits. And so therefore it doesn't matter, but I think they are interesting for us to take in, so I think they should be there. But the Bible is reliable. There are no mistakes. And where there are differences, they are very clear. And we see what they are. Okay, what about contradictions? Because uh, we can be sure about the copies. What about the contradictions? People say the Bible has got contradictions. And we want to think whether it has. I want to say no contradictions. Let me give you examples where people say that the Bible says two different things. So, for example, when people went to the tomb after Jesus died and came back to life, one Gospel writer says there was one angel who spoke to them. The other Gospel writer says that they saw two angels. Different things. One Gospel writer says that when Jesus went into a city called Jericho, he healed a, my, a man born blind, healed him. Another Gospel writer says that he healed a man who was blind as he was leaving Jericho. Who is right? Isn't it a contradiction? In the first part of uh, most Gospels, Jesus uh, helps Peter to get a big catch of fish at the very start. In John's Gospel, Jesus helps Peter to catch a great amount of fish right at the very end, after his resurrection. Contradictions? Well, you can argue that. But isn't it possible that in the first case, the gospel that spoke about one angel is only recording the one angel who spoke, doesn't deny there were two. Isn't it possible that Jesus could have healed a blind man as he went into Jericho and another blind man as he was leaving because at the city gate is where people went to for help? Isn't it possible that Jesus would bring a big pile of fish in at the start to help Peter and the disciples to realize they are going to be fishers of men and then for Jesus to do the same miracle at the end to remind them that's what they would be doing now that he was going? No contradictions at all. Isn't it possible for one person to say Jesus loves Catherine and another person to say Jesus loves Abigail? Is there a contradiction? Can they not both be true? And I think the Bible contradictions are in that area. I want to suggest that neither contradictions nor mistakes are there in the Bible 
to give people any doubt. I think that is another explanation why people have doubts. And let me draw the picture like this. It is whether or not we are willing to see ourselves as servants. David in Psalm 19 writes a great book about the Bible because he sees himself as a servant in verse 11 and in verse 13. That's how he looks at himself. And the one thing that helps us to understand the Bible, the one thing that will get in the way of us understanding the Bible, is humility to help and pride that will hinder. It's possible for pride to see little mistakes and to try and make them look big. It's possible for humility to see mistakes and to keep them in their proper size. It's possible for pride to look at contradictions and be horrified. It is possible for humility to look at contradictions and to harmonize, to see that both may be true. And I think the best uh, verse of the Bible that helps us to pick that out is actually in Isaiah. And uh, I've got it written down uh, here um, on the screen. But uh, in uh, Farsi, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, right at the end, it says, This is the one to whom I will look, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you find someone who is teachable, you find someone who is willing to be contrite and humble and to tremble at God's word rather than to take it on. If you find someone who is arrogant, it is someone to whom God will not look, which means it is someone under his judgment. And the scales remain. And the Bible is a closed book. What do we take home from that? Let's uh, suggest three lessons. First, that actually the Bible, if you're someone who is new to Christian things and maybe new to the Bible yourself, let me suggest to you that there is one book in the world that you can track back to the breath of God and this is the one book in the world that God has written to explain himself. And if we try to find flaws with it, it is usually because we are flawed with pride and look for ways to avoid a God who humbles pride. But if I might encourage you, even plead with you, to pick up your Bible and to listen to it as if you were listening to God himself speak to you to tremble at his word, to be deeply humble about what you read. I want to suggest to you that will open your life to a whole new view of God as glorious and a whole new view of your life as something that is much more significant.
uh, than you believe it is. Humility is the key that unlocks uh, uh, that uh, discovery. And if you are a churchgoer, may I suggest it is possible for us to read the Bible and hear it read in church and not to know the Bible. Last Wednesday Bible study, a lady came who has, I think, been to church all her life, and she said something quite remarkable. She said, I don't think I know the Bible. And I went to her thinking, why would someone say such a thing if they've been claiming to be a Christian for such a long time? And I think that the difference is this, that if we ultimately read our Bibles only in church and hear it read only in church, but it may be in the goodness of God in the early days that the lights will go on and that we'll get uh, excited at the discoveries that we make. But if all we do is open the Bible when we get to church, we will find that our understanding is going to shrink. I want to suggest to you that if we really understand the Bible and take it in, that we would hold this to be the one treasure in the world that is above anything else that we own and that we will at least want to give this 15 minutes a day to have a look and read and to understand. And if we understand the Bible and read it at home, we will gain so much more when we read it in church. That's why the home and the church are linked. But then thirdly, what happens if you are someone who wants to get more from the Bible and you are discouraged by what people are saying. The BBC always put on a, te a television documentary that will tell you sooner or later, every year they'll put one on that tells you the Bible is not worth the paper it's written on. How do you handle discouragement? And the answer, I think, is to do what we don't normally do which is to have moments in your time, maybe this August, where you have a season of real deep gratitude to God for a very precious gift that he's given to us. Normally, you don't look at a light and say, this is a good light. Normally, the light is there to tell you something else to look at and you admire what the light shines on. And in most cases, the Bible is there, not to say what a great Bible, but to say what a great God. But every now and then, I think it is right, like Psalm 19 does, is to say, this is a great light. And to thank God, to literally go through the week thanking God for the way that he has revealed himself in the Bible. Now, to do that, I want to suggest that this might be something we might like to take home and practice. One, last week we saw that a great encouragement would be uh, to, um, uh, to uh, go home and spend time, maybe just half a chapter, and just get in the habit of uh, uh, having half a chapter of Bible uh, every day uh, in your own home. And if you want a Bible, we'll give you a Bible to do that. <coughs> but now I want to add a second encouragement from tonight. I want to suggest that you also have your Bible and a little piece of paper. 
And on that little piece of paper, you complete two sentences. One sentence, read half chapter, and after reading it, write, God is glorious because... And finish that sentence from what you've read. And then the second sentence, I am not glorious because... So that we humble ourselves in the light of what God has said and shown. God is glorious because I am not glorious because. Have a piece of paper and write the answers to those sentences as you read just maybe half a chapter. And it doesn't need to take long. But it will open up a whole new world of discovery that God is a glorious God. And that is something that uh, uh, there'll be voices wanting us to have doubts about. But the Bible would want to know the Bible is sure and the law of the Lord is perfect. Not just because it's an academic book, but because it really will revive your soul. Let's pray that God will help us to see that. And then after that, let's pray that um, we'll be taking questions and uh, comments that you might like to make. Let me pray first. Our great God, we do want to thank you that you speak words that are clear, that are loving, that are easy to understand, and that revive our souls. Please will you give us the humility to study what you say and to be humble and contrite and to be trembling at your word. And we pray for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.